You're listening to Foreseeable, a production of Globalization, the flagship digital platform of Singapore's Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. Each episode, we invite an expert for a conversation relating to their field of study or experience and to find out what they foresee happening in the future. Vinod Thomas is visiting professor at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. Previously, he served as Director General of Independent Evaluation at Asian Development Bank, where he worked to institute change. In his role, he assessed ADB's development effectiveness while providing lessons to help inform ADB's actions. This was instrumental in making green growth and action on climate change more integral to ADB's strategy. This is just one example of Professor Thomas's deep understanding of issues affecting climate change and the environment. So he's in a perfect position to help us answer this question. Renewable energy, how real is this for Asia? I thought we could begin this discussion by just talking about the status quo. You know, what happens if Asia maintains the status quo and makes no attempt to increase renewable energy? Every projection that the scientific community has made in recent uh, months and years has been worse than the previous. And the picture is bleak in the sense that we already are looking at an increase of 1.1 degrees temperature since the Industrial Revolution. And scientists warn that if that crosses 1.5 and 2 we would be looking at an ice-free planet, and that is absolutely one to be avoided. But the downside is that if business as usual were to continue, we could be looking at even four to five degrees uh, increase in temperature by the end of the century, and that would be an uninhabitable planet. So the situation in that sense, going from carbon emissions to warming of the atmosphere and greater intensity and frequency of disasters would be characterized clearly as a dire one on which actions can be taken, should be taken, but forthrightly and with a sense of urgency. Maybe you could go into a little bit more detail of what what do you mean by dire, just how, how bad are we talking about? So let's say we look at this from the point of view of Southeast Asia and Singapore. There are many ramifications of the kind of temperature increase that we can envisage in the absence of action. And the first thing that comes to mind is sea level rise, especially for those countries that are, that are located along the sea coast. So at the moment, we are already seeing that sea level rise is worrisome, uh, especially for places uh, like Singapore that has about a third of its uh, geography located less than five meters above sea level. Under the current scenario of carbon emissions warming through the century, one could be looking at one meter higher in sea levels uh, in uh, Singapore and in neighboring places as well. What does that mean? I think the coastal areas will be difficult to inhabit. Indonesia could see five to 10 million people display if this sea level rise continues. And say Vietnam could see a quarter to a third of its population severely affected. So these are unthinkable scenarios. And so averting them is the top of the list for this region. But it's the same really for the rest of the world. 
And uh, there are many ways to think about that. But one simple way is that the root cause being carbon emissions, attacking that root cause will have to be the top billing. So that is often summarized in terms of our efforts to achieve global net zero emissions, let's say by 2050. And Mm -hmm. add to that, if Asia itself did not achieve net zero, there is no chance on earth that the rest of the world taken together will be able to achieve global net zero. And that's because Mm -hmm. Asia is a big player and it's about half of the emissions already and has overtaken North America and European Union in terms of additional incremental emissions. So the challenge is very clear. It stares in our face. Mm -hmm. So it's clear the status quo, that's not acceptable. We can't keep going the way we are. It's clear that Asia has to be part of this drive, but specifically talking about Singapore, in your opinion, do you think Singapore is ready for renewable energy and how so? Right. I think in the case of averting global catastrophe, Singapore, as we all know, while the highest per capita income country in Asia, is also small in terms of the global perspective. Its carbon footprint is minor. At the same time, every country needs to uh, make a contribution. And Singapore's role as the highest per capita income in Asia is also one of modeling behavior. And so the question of what can Singapore realistically do is critical as well. The starting point, however, is not a favorable one in the sense that 95% of the energy used in Singapore relies on a fossil fuel, that is natural gas, much better than coal, but nevertheless, it is a fossil fuel emitting half the amount as coal. And so for being primed to help, even lead on mitigation where possible, Singapore needs to be looking at the composition of where that fossil fuel base is hinged on. One is the power sector. So 40% of the emissions in the Republic comes from the power sector. But so does industry and transportation have roles as well. So switching to renewables, uh, cleaner forms of energy from fossil fuels, uh, including natural gas, is the agenda for Singapore. And can that be done quickly enough, effectively enough? Can we switch to solar, wind, other forms of clean energy in real time will be the challenge for Singapore. Singapore's carbon footprint is small, but the per capita income is high. So I I suppose the implication is if a rich country like Singapore can't do anything to mitigate or shift to renewables, how would anyone expect a poorer country to do anything? Is that right? That is that is correct. When we think about the uh, total envelope within which we look at carbon emissions, if Singapore were to go clean energy overnight, that will not by itself solve the problem. And so there is a question of everybody else doing the same, especially the big emitters. In the location that Singapore is in, it is hard to imagine Southeast Asia making a dramatic move if the more affluent regions or countries in in the same area were not to follow the same behavior. And so in that sense, 
Singapore acting on mitigation forthrightly will be a signal that Southeast Asia, for sure, and the rest of the world will take away as well. Mm-hmm. And speaking of Singapore specifically, everyone here we're very used to our kind of comfortable lifestyle with things like air conditioned office buildings and and very nice quality of life. Can you tell me about the mindset that would need to change or how people need to think about comfortable living versus taking ambitious steps towards decarbonizing the economy? I think that goes to the uh, root of our dilemma. I think mm-hmm. we are looking at possibly two critical dichotomies and both of them i would like to say are false dichotomies the first is economic growth cannot continue as we have gotten used to in the future if we switch to cleaner forms of energy the truth is the other way around if you look at the scientific projections there will be no economic growth if we did not switch to clean forms of energy so we have the truth on its head and that drives short term decisions i think about the long term all reasonable people agree that cleaner energy needs to be the fuel uh, for the future however the short term decisions especially in election cycles and so on are driven by uh, the short term economic growth being affected by the transition to clean forms of energy so we really need to dispel that first dichotomy the second one really is equally important and that is the thinking that energy transformation conflicts with comfortable living here again the truth is the other way around that is without decisive decarbonization the quality of life and standards of living are under threat maybe i can give one example singapore is already experiencing the so called urban heat island effect from the heavy reliance on air conditioning and that's the case for several countries in the world we are at a point when housing blocks and office buildings they need to stop discharging hot plumes that heat up the surroundings so rather than a trade off conservation of air conditioning will help prevent the vicious cycle of even more air conditioning use even more burning of fossil fuels and even more carbon emissions that in turn aggravates the so called urban heat island effect so um logic is clear but the action is caught up in the immediacy of certain decisions and also perhaps the political economy that some people may lose from actions that are good for society but may not be for a minority of individuals mm-hmm. what are the realities here in singapore and in asia broadly of implementing these huge infrastructure systems and and projects to to make renewable energy possible right and so when we think of renewable energy relatively clean forms of energy there is a list and its applicability varies quite a bit so we think of southeast asia and let's say singapore in particular solar photovoltaic that remains top item on the list a strong renewable energy option but that along with especially wind which is another option they face some severe constraints for singapore much less for large countries like india and china in terms of solar panels 
also in the case of Singapore, high clouds cover and urban shading, which limit uh, the possibilities. But uh, we, even with all of that, if one were to do a benefit-cost analysis of the investments in solar, the benefits of investing in um, solar, but also subsidizing the early use of uh, solar to enable that transition, all of those benefits far outweigh the costs. And so the, the point would be that in the case of solar, if that current target is to, let, let's say, cover about 4% of the needs through solar, I would think that in the big scheme of things, that's a very modest ambition. And one could be thinking of 10% fairly soon and 20% by the mid-2020s as well. In addition, solar can also, as Singapore recognizes, be imported using difficult mechanisms, but nevertheless, undersea cable, etc., which can uh, be fed in by Australia, Indonesia, and so on. And these are the kinds of projects that are already under consideration. But speeding them up and putting in the money needed for that would have very high payoffs. In the area of renewables, we also should add hydropower. Hydropower from Laos, that could be a realistic option. All redoubling of efforts uh, to move these areas of concern into a doable list of options would have very high payoffs. There are other aspects as well in the case of renewables, which need to be in the mix as we look forward. And what about other policy measures that need to be implemented in the mix, as it were? Uh, Carbon tax, for example? Yes, I think when we think about sort of that, let me call it the technological solutions, we quickly realize that we need them, they are necessary, but they may not automatically deliver the uh, results. And so we ought to be thinking really of a broad-based mix of policies. And there, the pricing of carbon It's not an intangible concept when you think that everything else is priced, almost, and that is what governs our lives. And so in this case, air is free, pollution has no consequence, well, uh, until we put a tax on it. And so pricing of the carbon uh, emissions by the polluters and perhaps targeted heavily on the heavy polluters, because that is what matters for the total, becomes a very, very high uh, priority action. And Singapore has taken uh, steps in taxing the carbon tax of $25 uh, Singapore dollars a ton is a a very important step that has been taken. Here again, the question would be, what would be enough? What would be a right price? At what price will we see the emitters reacting? And my guess would be, and this is more or less, I guess, that in a a range that we think about, let's say 25 to 100 and 150, when the tax is of the order of 45 to 50 dollars a ton, that is probably when we would see uh, strong actions or significant actions from the emitters. So carbon pricing within which a tax is one important measure. I think we should also add that technology and pricing, two critical pieces, but so is mindsets and behavior. And so how we look at nature, is it one to be destroyed to maximize economic growth or one to be invested in a natured 
so we have sustainable growth. And if that mindset were to take place, well, all the pricing and all the technological solutions will be that much easier because people will speak about the value of it and behave accordingly. And so I would put as a third item on the list, uh, education campaigns, reality checks, and uh, mobilizing of public opinion in favor of perhaps actions that may have been unpopular in the past, for instance, a carbon tax. So the three combined, the technological, the uh, market or pricing mechanisms, and uh, change of mindsets would be a, a package of actions that has a chance of delivering success. And then which countries in Asia do you think have a conducive policy and regulatory framework that can attract large capital investments in renewable energies from domestic and international investors to move this forward? So in the case of this neighborhood of Singapore, which is Southeast Asia, we think of the grouping of countries in ASEAN. And when we think of that group, we are facing this uh, dilemma that IMF in a report dramatized to say that here is a region that is arguably facing the greatest climate threat in the world in terms of natural disasters from excess use of carbon by all and therefore the warming and sea level rise and therefore floods and storms as well as droughts and heat waves. So faced with that extreme situation, Southeast Asia is also the region that is adding the most uh, carbon emission into the air not the total amount, but the addition, the increase. That irony needs to be confronted. So within that picture that the region has been moving in the wrong direction on switching out of uh, fossil fuels, we have a number of good examples that need to be now scaled up. They may be very specific examples, but the ASEAN ministers taken together have indicated that 23% of the energy needs would be met by renewables. And if you think of, of the installed capacity itself, it would be about 35%. And this is to be achieved by 2025. I still think it's a modest goal, but at the same time, a tough one, given the trends that we are seeing. Within that picture, I think we have examples of regulatory frameworks shifting in the right direction a bit in Vietnam, in uh, Thailand, Philippines, especially Malaysia, uh, and Indonesia. And Singapore still stands out here as a positive example with the carbon tax uh, story, I would say. But especially in another area that we might also need to be focusing on heavily, which is adaptation to climate change. That is, if we rightly emphasize mitigation, all the things that we need to do to switch out of fossil fuels, we also need to realize that the die has already been cast. And so whatever we do now, we are going to see an increasing temperature and disasters for the next several decades. In that context, while we must emphasize mitigation, we also need to adapt, which is essentially coping mechanisms. And Singapore would be a leader in that area. So that would be the uh, example from the region I would cite as being very positive, but on adaptation. On mitigation, it is hard to pick a single country because 
of the picture I painted earlier that this region as a whole needs to make a U-turn. It is not going in the right direction. So that can't be an example you want to cite. Change is possible if you look at regulatory improvements and investments, including by the private sector, uh, that some of the countries in ASEAN that I mentioned are beginning to take. One area of uh, immediate action and low-hanging fruit to go all out for the region would be to get rid of all subsidies for fossil fuels right away and then selectively also think whether renewables need economically justifiable, socially justifiable subsidies or you could say encouragement so that the transition would be smoother. So removing the subsidies is, you called it low-hanging fruit, but I imagine there's a lot of political resistance to doing something like that or, or else it would have been done already, right? Can you tell me more about just, the again, the political realities of taking a step like that? I think there are um, two aspects to this. One is the direct hit that a minority of producers would take when the subsidy is removed. They got used to it. And so the um, producers would have an objection to that. But the other, perhaps uh, more complicated one to deal with would be the consumers that people are you know, used to certain necessities having a low enough price that they can afford. So part of the action would be, again, mobilization of opinions and public opinions and mindsets to see that this kind of action might be what is needed for the societal good. But equally, the second part would have to be where it does affect low-income people's pocketbook. I think providing safety nets and support mechanism for a period of time that you can get away from later on is perfectly justifiable as well. So we need an architecture of no subsidy within which there is a policy framework to provide safety nets to make that transition possible. How realistic is a prospect of nuclear power as a renewable energy resource uh, source in, in Asia? Okay, so we listed the renewables and went down the list of solar, wind, hydro, etc. And uh, we can add to that prospective ones like hydrogen, uh, including our sequestration uh, of carbon. And nuclear has to be in that list as well. Clearly, historically, there has been great hesitation in switching to nuclear, say in Singapore, but also elsewhere both for cost considerations and importantly for safety concerns. But the picture is different now and uh, we may be seeing a response, uh, be it in Japan or in Germany, different now than say five years ago. Studies of the 2010s concluded that nuclear technologies were not suitable for Singapore. Um, a newer assessment would show that we need to take into account two or three important differences. One is small modular reactors could make nuclear power more viable because they use less space, which is very important for Singapore, and can be mass-produced, that's important, and have uh, short lead times. They may reduce, if not minimize, human error, for example, when it comes to cooling systems, which became a huge concern following the Chernobyl uh, disaster. 
So uh, new approaches that use stronger safety features, especially backup for cooling, that that could be a game changer. Also, uh, nuclear new technologies for fusion, they promise that the risk of meltdown, nuclear meltdown, could be much lower if not eliminated and then minimize radioactive waste disposal as well. So these are reasons that include nuclear in the list of options. And I think examining them really aggressively and uh, and positively would be part of the climate solution. But keeping in mind that following this route itself is time consuming. And we're thinking about results on this that go into the decades, not years. If you'd like to subscribe to the Globalization Newsletter, look for the link in the description or find us on Facebook at Global is Asian.